On December 4, 1977, in Bengi, the capital of what was then declared the Central African Empire, the world press witnessed the coronation of the Imperial Majesty Jean Bedel Bokassa. The per capita income of the Central African Empire at this time was $459 a person, about 1% of what the U.S. per capita income was in 1977. Yet the single coronation, lasting but one day, was to cost $20 million, leading the country into economic bankruptcy. At 10 a.m., the ceremony was opened with the roll of drums, the announcement of the approach of His Majesty. The, the processional began with his 29 children making their way down a long aisle and being seated in the front of the auditorium, followed by his eight-year-old son dressed in a white admiral's uniform, the heir to the throne. He was seated on a red pillow to the right of the throne, was followed by Bacasa's favorite wife out of nine wives, and she wore a $73,000 gown that was made by out of pearls. The emperor then entered the scene, made his way through a long processional, drawn in his carriage by six matching horses. When the Marine band blared the sacred march of the Emperor Bokasa I, the Emperor strode forth, cloaked in a 32-pound gown, a robe with 780,000 pearls, pure gold embroidery. His hands were encapsulated with white gloves, and he had on his feet slippers made of pearls. On his brow, he wore a, a gold wreath, similar to that which the Roman councils would wear as they were declared the ruler of the nation. As the sacred march made its conclusion, Bokasa made his way in to the front of the auditorium and sat down on his golden throne. It cost over $2 million. And then as Napoleon has done 153 years before this, he took off his golden crown to be replaced by a crown studded by 80 diamonds. To rapturous applause by the audience. Of course, that was orchestrated by Bocasa's agents intermingled into the crowd. At 1043, the world had a new emperor and a new royal family. Mercifully, Bacasa's reign did not last very long, only two years, before French paratroopers entered the scene and removed him from his office. But it came too late to the, for many of the people in his country who were part of a systematic persecution, culminating in the killing of 100 high school students. This was orchestrated personally by Bocasa. Their crime, 
they had protested the cost of the uniforms they were required to wear to school. They were lined up and systematically shot. Bokasa did his best to establish an enduring kingdom, but it crumbled in fire and bloodshed in just a few years. And so it has been for many despotic kings throughout the world. They have declared their importance, their empire, their majesty, only to have it crumble, either through their death or through them being ousted from the government itself. All the rights, all the empires, all the everlasting kingdoms have dissolved, only to be remembered in uh, a pedantic dissertation written by a PhD student that mentions their regime or their name and then is cataloged in a dusty library that no one will ever read the document. But every Easter, for 2,000 years, a king is remembered on this Palm Sunday. He was a different kind of king, a king who operated with a different set of principles, so different that initially even his close followers could not understand what was going on in his life. Many did not accept his kingship, but he was a different kind of king. Today we're going to look at that in a very familiar passage, so I invite you to open your Bibles or turn on your device to Luke, the 19th chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 44. As we enter this story, this first-hand account by Luke, this, the journey of Jesus has lasted nine months now. He has purposely zigzagged through the Galilee, through Samaria, through Perea, and now into Judea itself. During the last nine months, he's gone to 39 different localities, presented the gospel. Now he arrives at the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, the holy city in Israel. At the very start of the feast that they call Passover, that commemorates the fact that Jesus, or that God passes over the Jews in Egypt, delivers them out of their captivity, Passover. Thousands of Jews throughout the Roman Empire gather at Jerusalem at this time. John records for us in the 11th chapter that Jesus had previously raised Lazarus from the dead. He had cured sickness. A woman had come with a very expensive perfume and had anointed his head with that perfume worth thousands of dollars. And Jesus had not dismissed her. Throngs of people gathered around Jesus. And their thoughts. Was, Is this the new king? The new Messiah? Well, might he declare himself at this very moment? Cast out the Romans, the hated Romans. Establish the new kingdom of David on the throne in Jerusalem. What kind of king would he be? Everyone, Passover, this festival, knew that something was happening, but they weren't exactly sure what was going on during this Palm Sunday. The narrative starts this way, verse 30. The words of Jesus to his disciples 
Go to the village ahead of you in, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. We see then first in this passage that Jesus is in control of the situations around him. All the circumstances, all the events that are taking place in the life of Jesus are done in such a way that it's premeditated by him. It's done with a forethought. The colt is tethered in a place that Jesus knows about. He tells his disciples to go to that place. They will find that colt, that donkey. They are to bring it to him. And the owner does not does not say what's going on here. He consents to that. Jesus knows that. Jesus is in control of the situation. And at this moment, his followers wonder, what is going on here? If we took time to trace the life of Jesus up to this point in the narrative, There have been but a few occasions, almost none, where Jesus has publicly declared who he he is, that he is the Messiah. Matter of fact, he hasn't declared it at all. When crowds gather around Jesus, he withdraws away from them out into the sea, out into a boat, away into the wilderness. It's almost as if he's he's self-conscious. But no, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And he knows that this is the moment when he's going to declare himself. He appears to invite attention. He's in control of what is happening in this scene. And what will happen in this last week of his earthly life. Why a donkey, you might ask? Because five centuries prior to this event, a prophet named Zechariah, had written these words probably around 520 B.C. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Jesus is, without any equivocation, declaring that he is the Messiah. He is in control of the situation. And there are two very important things that we glean from this passage right now. The Jewish leaders saw very very clearly what Jesus was doing, but we may miss it. The first thing that we would notice is that Jesus uses a donkey to come into Jerusalem. To the Jews of Jerusalem, during the time of Jesus, the donkey was the sacred animal. They understood that during the reign of David, the donkey was the animal that symbolized the king. Now, when Solomon came along, David's son, he had changed it and said that the horse was the sacred animal. And that's why they had built all those great stables in Megiddo. But up to the time of David, the sacred animal, the animal that symbolized the king was the donkey. It was the royal animal. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is saying he is of the lineage of David, the great king of Israel. But there's a second important point as he chooses the donkey. 
And that is simply this, that he's not going to rule by fear, by intimidation, by might. It's going to be gentle. Paul picks this up. Philippians 2, 5 and 6. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taken on the very nature of a servant. Jesus is in control of the situation. And he graphically displays that he's also the king. Dr. Albert Schweitzer, in a book, a very famous book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, he was a great explorer, but in this book, he recounted all the events that takes place in Jesus' life. And he comes to the conclusion, and this is the words he used, that Jesus was crushed by the wheels of history. Schweitzer says that all the events around Jesus in this, in this Palm Sunday, and especially in the events to follow, the betrayal, the crucifixion. All those things happen because Jesus has no control over them. He's just caught up in the wheel, and the wheel is yet grinding, grinding, and he becomes his victim, says Schweitzer. But he was wrong, Schweitzer, because Jesus is the one turning the wheel. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 2.6, that Jesus does not have his life taken from him. Rather, Jesus gives his life as a sacrifice for many. Now, having secured the sacred donkey, the triumphal entry begins, verses 35 and 36. They brought it, that's the donkey, to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And they went along, as they went along, people spread their coats on the road. Jesus is now the center of attention. All eyes are on him. The Jews know what's going on. The Romans are still perplexed. Who is this person? What is happening here? And the people paying homage to Jesus, they take off their cloaks, their their cloaks and they, and they put them on the donkey and then they, they spread them, their garments along the road as a symbol that everything that they have belongs to this new king. And Luke throws in a, an additional insight here concerning their enthusiasm. Verse 37, when they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. For all the miracles they had seen. If we took time to canvas a gospel, any gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we would find that one of the, one of the great themes, not only in the gospel, but throughout the Bible, is that miracles are always performed to authenticate the miracle worker. That's the purpose of the miracle. It authenticates the miracle worker. So Moses, when he does those great miracles before Pharaoh and before the people of Israel, the reason for that, the reason he can do those miracles is because God has 
is using those miracles to authenticate that he is from God. Elijah and Elisha, which is the next great uh, time of miracles in the Bible. What's going on there? God is affirming that Elisha and Elijah are sent by God. When you get to the, the book of Acts, Peter and Paul do those miracles. Again, the purpose is to authenticate that they are from God. They are the miracle workers sent from God. And so Jesus, as he opens his ministry, his public ministry, by doing what? A miracle of changing water to wine at a wedding at Cana of Galilee. And he closes, in effect, his ministry prior to coming to this event of Palm Sunday with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You see, and the people see that. So verse 37, they begin to joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they have seen. In addition to praising God for the miracles, they start to shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 38. This is a phrase taken from what we call the Hillel uh, Psalms. That's Psalm 113 to 118. And this particular phrase is actually taken verbatim from Psalm 118, verse 26. Now, it's been slightly adapted by the crowd, and, and they have added this, this final clause, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Reminds us of the words of the great heavenly host as Jesus is born. Glory to God in the highest, they proclaim. Kent Hughes, the pastor I worked with prior to coming to here, Black, coming to here at BlackRock, commenting on this verse said this, they sang more than they knew for peace on earth is dependent on peace on heaven, in heaven. The Gospel of John adds one more little tidbit here. Why do we call this Palm Sunday? John 12, 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They took palm branches. What's the significance of that? Well, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, you know that from 165 to 63 AD, or BC, 165 to 63 BC, Israel was an independent nation. That the Maccabean revolt had taken place and they had thrown, on, thrown out all the foreigners and they had become sovereign until the Romans came in. But during this time of of national independence. Historians tell us that the symbol for the Maccabeans was a palm. And it was placed on all the coins. It was the flip side. They might have a, a, a character on the front, but the other side always had the palm branch on it. And so in all likelihood, what the people are doing as, they, as they're laying down the palms, they're making a political statement. They're saying to them, to the other Jews there and to the Romans, the new king is here. The palm branches symbolize the freedom, the independence that we want from the hated Romans. They're making their political statement. And as they shout, Hosanna, which means save or save us or Lord save us, it's a political statement. They are declaring that this Jesus 
He might be the new king. He might throw out the Romans. He's the great liberator. They understood the king was there. They just did not understand what the king was going to do. Two central themes of this passage. First, Jesus is in control. He's not caught up in the machine. It's not yet grinding, grinding, and he's going to be the victim. No, Jesus is in control. And so all the events that we're going to celebrate this next week, even the bad things, the betrayal and the crucifixion, and gloriously the resurrection, are all orchestrated by God. Palm Sunday symbolizes for us that Jesus is in control. But there was a second thing, and that is that as this king comes, his second declaration, he comes as a humble king. He does not come to rule with an iron fist. He comes to rule, in the words of Zechariah, gently, riding on a donkey. But there was a huge twist at the very end of the story. Sometimes we end it right there. But the passage continues on. And we find that as Jesus approaches Jerusalem and he's coming in from the western side, he's making his way easterly. And as he does so, when he sees the city, what does he do in verse 41? He starts to weep over it. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem at all, you know that as you make your way from that side, what is now in essence the occupied side of Palestine at this point. As you make your way from Bethany and, and uh, Beth Page, you enter a hollow. And as you start to climb up Mount Olives, what has happened is the whole concept of uh, being able to see the city of Jerusalem has evaporated. You can't see anything of it. All you see is the hills ahead of you. And the people around him start to wonder, what is Jesus going to do? What is going to happen? Is Jesus, this new Messiah, as we have placed the, the palm branches before him, symbol of the new king, is he going to declare himself? Is he going to say, follow me? Is there going to be a Rocky Balboa moment when he says, come on? And he's going to leap up the stairs and say, let's take the city. Let's throw the Romans out. I'm going to establish the kingdom of David again on the throne of David. But that doesn't happen. As they reach the crest of the hill and as Jesus looks over Jerusalem and sees the great temple, the temple made by Herod, the one of the magnificent edifices in all of the Roman Empire at that point, what does Jesus do? He starts to sob. He starts to cry. And he gives us that lament that we find in verses 42 and 43. Notice how personal the lament is. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, and now it is hidden from your eyes, the day will come when you and your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. 
They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Historically, this event will be fulfilled. This prophecy will be fulfilled within 40 years. For in 70 AD, the Roman legions will make their way into Israel. And they will encamp around Jerusalem. And eventually they will break down the walls. And they will reduce Jerusalem to a heap of rubble. The only wall we will recognize today was what we call the Wailing Wall from the great temple of Herod. The story of His Majesty, the Emperor Jean Bokassa, is all too typical of earthly kings, but it's also true of each of us. There's a little Bokassa in each of us that says, I want to control my circumstances. I am really going to plan out my life. What's going to happen tomorrow and a week from now and a month from now and a year from now and my retirement? We really want to do a self-coronation. We want to be control. But Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem and as he enters our lives, enters it gently, riding on a donkey, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus, as he looks over the sin of Jerusalem and what is going to happen to that city, he starts to cry. Jesus comes in a fragmented world. And I think today as he looks over this world, he cries, he weeps, over what he sees happening in Africa with the AIDS and Ebola situation. The innocent dying in our cities, the powerless feeling like they have no control over anything in Bridgeport and Fairfield County. And Jesus also looks at your life and my life and he weeps over the sin in our lives. Seven days from now, we have one of the most glorious celebrations, Easter. We proclaim that the grave could not hold Jesus, and it will not hold us. And that he is the king of all events in our lives. And so we welcome this Jesus who controls the circumstances in his life, controls the circumstances in our lives. We welcome this Jesus who is humble. We welcome this Jesus who, as he looks upon the hurts in our lives and the hurts in our world, cries on our behalf. And because we serve a different kind of king, we are called to live a different kind of life.
stand with me as we pray. Maybe there's something in your life today you want prayer for. And so we're going to, we have some people, our prayer team will be forward uh, this morning and we'll pray with you. We want to encourage you to come forward and pray. And now let us talk to God. Thank you, God, that you're not indifferent towards us. Thank you, Father, that in the vicissitudes of life, when our lives seem to be out of control, when bad things happen to us and we wonder what is going on, thank you that you're there, that you will control the circumstances in our lives as you controlled the circumstances during Palm Sunday in the next week as we will celebrate Easter. Thank you that you're not indifferent towards us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that we go forth with a new kind of king and help us to live a life that is dedicated to his lordship. And God's people said, Amen. see you next week. <laughs>